Amen. Well, thank you so much, Cody, worship team, praise band. Thank you all, and good morning, everybody. It's great to see all of you here this morning as we are celebrating Resurrection Sunday today. I don't know if you noticed this yesterday or not, but we actually had a weird or an interesting natural countdown for today. Yesterday was April the 3rd. 2021, so it was 4321. If you notice that or not, I don't know, but it's a countdown to Resurrection Sunday, and that is the reason we're here today. As Braden already mentioned at the very beginning, is we're here this morning to proclaim a risen Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. You know, in Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, Luke chapter 24, all of them in verse 6, there's a simple phrase that changed everything. There's a group of women who went to the tomb. Early the Sabbath morning, and an angel said to them, Jesus is not here. He has risen. Jesus is not here. He has risen. And since those words, as they have rung true, it changes everything for us. The resurrection truly changes everything. And I don't know what, how you've celebrated Resurrection Sunday in the past, but the reason we are here this morning is to proclaim that Jesus Christ is alive and Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. If you would, please take a copy of God's Word. Y'all can clap for that. That's good. 1 Corinthians 15. I usually only clap whenever I make fun of myself or if I say something my wife says to me, so that's good. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you're turning there, about a month and a half, two months ago, I was in my office and I got buzzed in from my assistant and she said, Merrick, there's somebody on, line, on the line that wants to talk to a pastor about the faith. And I said, okay, sounds good. And so I answered, and I said, hello, this is Pastor Merrick. How can I help you, essentially? And, and he said, yeah, I have a couple questions I'd like to ask about Christianity and about the faith in particular. I said, sure, what, what would you like to, to, to ask? What would you like to know? Well, we, our conversation was about 13 minutes long, and he talked for about 12 minutes and 45 seconds of the 13-minute conversation. And essentially, I found out very quickly, this guy didn't want to have a conversation. He wanted to throw some things in my face and then hang up the phone. Well, I remember as we were talking at one point, he said several things that he finally gave me a point to answer, and it was about the resurrection. At one point, he said, do you really believe that Jesus, this Jew, rose from the dead? Do you really believe that this Bible is God's word to us. Do you really believe all of that stuff? That's crazy. Do you really believe that? And I said, yes. Let me tell you why. And then he started off again. <laughs> Y'all, we're here this morning to talk about the resurrection, but we have to be honest that the resurrection isn't a universally accepted fact, is it? It's something that many people dispute. People have opinions on this very subject. For some, it's the basis for their faith. It's a real event. But for others, people see it as a figurative event only, or that it didn't really happen, that it's based in lies, that it might be the biggest hoax in history. Or you have some people who've studied this, come away with the facts and just say, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say yet. Paul, even as he's writing to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, the word of the cross is foolish to the world, but to us. It is the power of God for salvation, right? And this is what we're looking at this morning, is that if Jesus really did rise from the dead, we have a reason to be here this morning. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, let's just leave. Let's just go home. Let's just eat lunch. Let's just hunt Easter eggs. Let's do whatever else. 
But if Jesus did rise from the dead, it changes everything. Y'all, our faith, if you're a Christian, it hinges on two people, on Adam and on Jesus. It hinges on Adam because being born as a human, you're born in the sin because Adam sinned. As a representative figure for us, we are born in sin with a sinful nature. But you see, all of history hinged on another man as well, and that man was Jesus Christ and what he did. And so this morning, as we look at the resurrection, we're coming to a topic that has massive implications, right? If this is true, everything else matters. If this isn't true, nothing else matters. And so I want to look at that question this morning. Did Jesus rise from the grave? Did he really rise from the grave? And I want to do this in three stages. One, I want to look at what does the Bible say happened? What does the Bible say happened? Secondly, I want to look at do we have adequate reason to believe it? I want to look at four options that are proposed by the world, some of the leaders in an opposing view of Christianity, and then what we believe as the fifth option. Do we have adequate reason to believe it? And then I want to ask the question, what now? What's the point of Paul writing this in the way that he does? Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the energy and excitement that I know I feel in the room. God, we are here because of you. God, we are here this morning to proclaim that 2,000 years ago, there was an empty tomb in the Middle East and an occupied throne in heaven. And we're here to proclaim that truth. You are Lord and you are Savior, God. Show us this morning in your word your truth. God, if there's anybody in here that, that is struggling with this, that I pray you show them the truth. If there are believers in here like me who've, who've had to walk through and wrestle through these things many different times in my life, God, strengthen our faith. Bolster our faith. Show us, God, that what we believe in, you've given to us. And we ask all this, Father, in your precious in your holy son's name. Amen. If you would, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's begin by reading verses 1 through 8. It says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What does the Bible say actually happened? The easiest and most clear way to look at it, Paul gives it to us right here. There are four things the Bible claims about Jesus regarding his death, burial, and resurrection. The first claim is this. Jesus died by crucifixion. According to the scriptures, this is the first claim. Jesus died by crucifixion. The second claim is that Jesus was then buried in a tomb. You see him say that. Jesus died. He was buried. That's the second claim. The third claim is that Jesus' tomb was found empty, which is right. The question is, what do you make of that fact? But Jesus' tomb was found empty. And the fourth fact is people confidently proclaimed that they saw Jesus after his death. Not just a few people, not just Peter. 
and the 12, meaning his disciples, that was the name for the 12, even though it was only 11 then, that was their name, the 12. Not just to Paul, not just to James, but over 500 people at one time. These are the claims. Jesus died by crucifixion. He was buried. The tomb was found empty, and people confidently proclaimed that they saw Jesus after his death. They confidently proclaimed that he rose from the dead. Now, even with all of this, the reason why Paul is having to write this is there are people in Corinth who are saying there is no resurrection from the dead. There is no resurrection of the dead. And Paul adequately expresses here, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then our faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Later on, he says, eat, drink, be merry, do what you want to do, essentially. If Jesus hasn't really risen from the dead, then none of this matters. Why is this important? Because I think we need to understand that 2,000 years ago, they were just as skeptical over the resurrection as people are today. It isn't like this is some new phenomenon. There are people in Corinth. This was written about 20 years after Jesus died. About 20 years after. And we see them talking about the resurrection isn't real. I like how the Holman commentary says this. The challenge of our belief in Christ's resurrection is not something that began with the rise of modern science or naturalistic thinking. It has been a foolish notion to many people from the day Jesus rose from the grave. And today you hear the same thing, right? That this didn't really happen. And those of you who believe, you just believe via blind faith. Don't, let every, don't ever let anybody keep you in that realm. There's no blind faith in this. We believe because of bold facts, reasonable evidence, to which is the whole point of this morning as well. If somebody wants to say that you believe via blind faith or this didn't really happen, that's not enough. We have four things that happened. Died by crucifixion, was buried, the tomb was found empty, people said they saw him after. You can't just say that's wrong, you have to defend your position. I like the way that, that R. Kent Hughes says this, the skeptic must come up with a historically feasible, plausible account or an alternative explanation for why there was an empty tomb, why there was an established barrier, why there were eyewitness accounts, and why was the emergence of the early church so fast and large? Why? You can't just say it didn't happen. You have to give reasons for why you believe it didn't, which is what I want to move to next. What does the Bible say? Those four things. Second question is, do we have adequate reason to believe it? Is it reasonable to say that Jesus rose from the dead, or is this just fairy tale talk? What I want to do is I want to look at five different overarching views, and I want to give you the option to look at them and decide this morning. What seems most reasonable? Option one, many people argue this, that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. There are many who would argue for this. Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. This is primarily given through two different theories. The first of that is called the wrong guy theory. The wrong guy theory. Basically, it was a lookalike of Jesus's who died in his place. Now, Muslims are one of the groups that claim that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Rather, someone who looked a lot like him died instead. Instead of reading the actual name of the book, you can just type in Quran verses 157 to 158. It'll be the first one that pops up, I promise you. That Jesus didn't actually die and said somebody died who looked like him and he rose later on. That's how they saw him afterwards. This message was first promulgated by Muhammad. Muhammad wasn't born until 600 years after Jesus died. 
Think about that. But he somehow knew that they got a lookalike instead of actually Jesus. At least that's what he claims. But you have to think about that. Is this reasonable? Is it reasonable to say that Jesus is with his disciples? They just ate the Lord's Supper. He just gave them all the teachings you see in John 14, 15, 16, 17, all throughout here. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is talking with them. And then he's betrayed by Judas. They take Jesus away right in front of them. He never leaves their sight. They go straight into trial, which leads straight to beating, straight to crucifixion. It wasn't like there was some gap in this time. In other words, it doesn't seem very reasonable to say that somehow or another they got the wrong guy. The second theory that's proposed about this is the swoon theory. Swoon theory. The swoon theory is proposed by many saying Jesus didn't actually die. And so whenever he was put in the tomb, the tomb is going to be cold. It's going to be dark. And this created the environment for him to revive, essentially, and then get out and escape. Now, I think saying this, it's really a misunderstanding um, of how serious the beating and crucifixion of Jesus really was. I like how Stephen Mansfield says this, that the soldier's skills were unprecedented in Jesus' day. The efficiency and professional nature of the crucifixions is off the charts. They were so skilled at what they did that a hundred years before Jesus was even crucified, the Romans crucified 6,000 men in a single day with no survivors. I'm pretty sure if they could do that, they could handle three in an afternoon, right? Something else very interesting that he talks about is if you were to be the one to actually drive the nails into the victim, you had to be one of the eldest and one of the most skilled. You had to know exactly where you were putting the nails. You had to know exactly what you were doing. In other words, these guys weren't just some people they pulled off the streets. They were expert executioners. And in all of history, there's never been somebody who survived the crucifixion. Much less, Jesus was beaten, 40 lashes minus one, beaten to the point of almost death before he was ever put on the cross. Now, I'm not saying this is a possibility, but if somebody went through all of that, then went into the tomb, you have me talk about how he got out, and he did all that. I mean, he's the first superhero, essentially. That's what it sounds like, right? Neither one of these is based in any evidence. The burden of proof is on them to say, how did you get to this conclusion? Is there reasonable evidence? I don't think so at all. The second option that many people promulgate is that Jesus' body was actually stolen. Jesus' body was stolen from the tomb. He didn't really rise from the dead and, and leave. Rather, it was stolen from the tomb. The short and easy way to put this is it's called the conspiracy theory. Jesus' disciples stole his body and then told everyone that he had risen from the dead. There's several reasons why this is really difficult for them to explain. The first one is the Romans did everything they could to make sure this wouldn't happen. Turn over to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to look at several verses over there. And I'm going to show you a defense in many ways why this would not have happened. Matthew chapter 27. This is after Jesus has already died, after he has been buried. And to be more exact, it's the day after. Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. Matthew 27, 62 to 66. It says this. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, meaning Jesus, how he said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order 
that the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So in other words, if, if the disciples came and stole his body, they'd have to take care of all the Roman guards there who were going to be equipped for battle, much more than the disciples would be. But not only that, they would have to find some way to unsecure the stone, to remove the stone themselves, to get in and to get Jesus out. You all think sometimes the way we look at the Roman soldiers, whether you say Jesus didn't die or whether you say the disciples just went and stole the body, we treat them like the TV does policemen. If you've ever watched a TV show or a movie, so often they treat policemen like they don't know how to do their job, right? Am I wrong in that? They treat them like they're easy to escape. They're not very smart in this, which is not true. And so often we bring that idea here, well, maybe, maybe these guys here just, you know, they, they, they didn't really know how to defend themselves. Or they didn't really know how to defend the tomb, which is not true at all. It's very clear. Pilate said, make it as secure as you can. Seal it. And they did so. But then afterwards, after they came and stole the body, you then have a problem for the disciples, even if they did actually steal the body. Who would believe that Jesus rose from the dead? This was crazy for them. Let me explain why. Look in the very next chapter, Mark 28, 13. They come to him and they say that the tomb is empty. They explain what all has happened. And the way that they think they can get by this is it's simple. Verse 12, it says, and when, they, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Verse 13. And they said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Why would this matter? Because if they stole him, they're not expecting him to rise from the dead because resurrections weren't even in the realm of possibility then. Which the first reason you see the disciples, there's no way they could have gone and gotten this, or even if there was a way, the second reason why the conspiracy theory doesn't work is the idea of a resurrection was ludicrous to them. Once again, somehow we get the idea that Jesus rising from the grave would have been easier for them to understand than it is for us. You know, you see in Acts chapter 17, Paul is talking to people in Athens, and he's explaining what happened through Jesus. He's preaching the gospel to them, and it says they were listening until he said Jesus rose from the dead. Whenever he said that, it struck a nerve, and they thought he was crazy. They said, you're out of your mind. They said, get this guy out of here. We don't need to listen to him anymore. The resurrection was crazy talk to them. You know what? It was also crazy to the disciples as well. You see, whenever the women first went and they saw the tomb was empty, they ran back and they told the disciples, and look at how the disciples responded. Luke 24, 10 and 11 says this, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Why? They had no realm in their mind to think that a resurrection was possible. If they thought it was an idle tale, because why? It sounded crazy to them. And many of them did not believe until when? Until Jesus showed himself to them. This idea that somehow or another the disciples went and stole the body is crazy because they would not have even thought this up. This idea would have been ludicrous. They wouldn't have been able to steal him easily. And you even see the way that the disciples responded whenever Jesus was taken is the exact opposite. 
I've heard it put this way. They were scared, scattered, and scarred whenever Jesus was taken and crucified. They were scared for their mind. If we are associated with him, we're going to be crucified too. So they ran. They were scattered. They didn't even stay together. They ran and hid in opposite places. And they were wounded. You know why? Because they thought they were following a guy who was going to overtake the Roman Empire and become king, and they thought he would, they would be his right and left-hand man. And that's not what happened. They were confused. They were scared, scattered, and scarred. Once again, the burden of proof is on them. If somebody wants to argue Jesus' body was stolen, you have to say, explain how. Explain this. Make sense of this because it does not make sense. The burden of proof is on them. The third reason we could go to. First, you say Jesus didn't really die on the cross or Jesus' body was stolen. The third thing or the third option we have is Jesus' tomb wasn't really empty. I have to say of all of the theories, this one might be the most comical. It's basically just called the wrong tomb theory. It claims that the women who went to the tomb early in the morning in their shock and grief, they went to the wrong tomb. When Jesus wasn't there, they told everyone that he had they told everyone that he had resurrected from the dead, and everyone else who did come after him also looked at the wrong tomb. How long could this hold up? Right? It'd be like if somebody told you Merrick and his family skipped town because I saw there was a house that was empty and it looked like their house. If you don't know my address, you don't know, right? If you know my address, come to my house. How easy would it have been to disprove this? Simple. The Roman soldiers would say, we're still guarding the tomb. Here, here's the tomb. You're at the wrong one. But even more so than that, it isn't like they didn't know. Once again, Matthew 27, 57 to 61. When it was evening, this is after Jesus had died, after he'd been crucified, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone at, to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. First off, they knew whose tomb it was that Jesus was buried in. It wasn't like this was a secret. They knew whose tomb he was buried in. Pilate knew whose tomb he was buried in. Secondly, why would the women go to the wrong tomb whenever they were there in the first place? The last part, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb whenever Jesus was placed in there and the stone was rolled over it. Once again, the burden of proof is on them. How do you explain this if you, with, based on these facts? So you have the first three. The fourth option that we have and this is by far the most used, I guess you could say, or promulgated one in our day and age, is that Jesus wasn't literally seen after his death. A lot of times these people recognize to argue that Jesus didn't die is difficult. It almost is an impossibility. To argue that Jesus wasn't buried is really difficult as well. To argue that there wasn't an empty tomb, there's really not much of an argument there. There, there was an empty tomb. It's just what do you make of it? And what they say is that the disciples didn't really see Jesus. He wasn't literally seen after his death. This is proposed in two ways. One is the hallucination theory. It's this idea that his disciples didn't really see Jesus. Rather, they missed him so badly that they only hallucinated and thought it was a reality. Well, in some ways, that could make sense. In some ways, it could make sense if this were to actually happen. There's only a problem with that. Is we see the Bible tells us of 10 different occasions when Jesus shows himself to people. And even more so than that, the biggest issue is if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, it says this. 
It says Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What is Paul trying to say to the church in Corinth? He said, if people are questioning the resurrection, let them know that Jesus showed himself to over 500 people, and if they want to know about it, these people are still alive. Go ask them. You know, some of you have heard me say this from the stage or know that I enjoy playing golf. I like watching golf. Specifically, there's one event every year I'm going to watch, and that is next weekend. It's the Masters. Like, it's a big deal. My dad and I actually got to go a year and a half ago to the Masters. It was an awesome time, even though it rained most of the time we were there. But the Masters... I enjoy golf. I enjoy talking golf. I enjoy playing golf. Well, I want you to imagine that, let's say we run into each other on Tuesday of this week. And you say, Merrick, how's your day going? I'm like, man, it is an awesome day so far. You're like, why? What what happened? And I tell you, well, I was at Starbucks here on 12th Street, and and whenever I went in, Tiger Woods was sitting there. And so I went there, and I sat, and I mean, he and I chopped it up for a while. We talked for a while. You know, we had our latte. He's passing through on his way down there. He can't play right now, obviously, because he got in his wreck. But we talked about golf for a while. If somebody were to say that to you, how would you respond? In your head, you're going back away slowly, right? Like if somebody's doing that, it sounds like they're hallucinating, right? But what if I told you this morning I was actually out at one of the country clubs here, and I saw that that there was a big commotion, and we went up, and Tiger Woods was actually out there talking to people. He had somebody. He was coming through, and, and he was there with another guy, and they were out at the driving range, and they were hitting some golf balls or whatever, And then Tiger started talking to people. There was over 500 of us there. They're actually writing a newspaper article about it tomorrow. Would you believe me then? You'd be hard-pressed to not believe me. If I said over 500 people saw him here, it'd be very difficult not to accept that witness, right? And this is what Paul is trying to say. Is look, it isn't like hallucinations happen with over 500 people at the same time. Maybe individual circumstances. I've heard some people, I don't even know how you get to this, up to maybe eight people you can have an hallucination. I don't even know where scientists get that thought. But up to 500 people, that just doesn't make sense. How do you prove that? The burden of proof is on them. The second part of that theory is the impersonation theory. Once again, it's the lookalike idea. That the disciples found somebody who looked like Jesus and basically said that Jesus rose from the dead and pointed people to find him. Once again, where's the proof? Where's the reasonable evidence? And whenever you look at it, there is none. There's no reason to believe this. So if you want to pull up the next slide, you see we have five options. And I'll talk about the last one now. The first is Jesus didn't really die on the cross. That's tough to prove. Jesus' body was stolen. Once again, really difficult to try and prove. Jesus' tomb wasn't really empty. Once again, I feel like that's an impossibility to even try and prove. Jesus wasn't literally seen after his death. Once again, I think that's difficult to prove. And the fifth and final thing for us, the final option is Jesus did really die. Jesus did really rise from the dead, and Jesus appeared to people. Once again, like I said, the first three seem to be unarguable facts, in my opinion. The fourth one even seems to be a pretty unarguable fact as well. But I want you to read the resurrection thing, or this resurrection story one more time, and see the way Paul crafts this He's crafting it in a way he wants them to understand that this is true and that this really happened. Look at verses 5 through 8 again. Verse 5, he says, And then he appeared to Cephas, which was Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also 
to me. I've never read this before and thought, why elaborate, Paul? Why elaborate so much? Why not elaborate on who all went to the tomb? Why not elaborate on who was there whenever Jesus was crucified? Why elaborate? Because this is the key piece regarding the resurrection. The people that saw him and what happened to them. It's the key piece for the resurrection. You see, you see first it says he showed, showed himself to Peter, which some people might say, oh, Peter was his you know, disciple. They were extremely close, one of his main three. Maybe that could happen by chance, or maybe he hallucinated that. But it says, then he appeared to the 12. Once again, the 12 is a title for the disciples. It was only the 11, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. That was their title, the 12. Then it says, to more than 500 people at one time, which you've already explained that. But I want you to look at the last two people he says. He says, he appeared also to James. James. Why is this so key? James was the half-brother of Jesus. And he didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Matter of fact, he was pretty adamant about the fact that Jesus was not the Son of God. I want you to look at John 7, 5. It says this. For not even his brothers believed in him. I want you to look at Mark 3, 20 to 21. It says this. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. He is out of his mind. The very brother of Jesus thought that he was out of his mind, which makes sense, right? Now, I want you to look at Acts 1.14. It says this. All these, this is after Jesus has died, after he's been resurrected, after he's gone back to heaven. It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. What changed? What changed? James wasn't even at the crucifixion of his own brother. You know why? Because he probably was embarrassed of him. This guy who he thought was crazy, who called himself the son of God, was called a traitor, essentially saying that he is God, right? A blasphemer. He's crucified. James didn't want any part of that. What changed, though? I want you to answer this question. What would it take for you to believe that your sibling was the son or daughter of God? It would take a lot, right? It doesn't take much for us to think our sibling is the son or daughter of somebody else, right? We all grow up thinking that. But what would it take for you to actually believe that your brother is the son of God? Have to be something pretty convincing, right? Why would he include James? It's because his only brother did not believe in him. But what changed? He saw Jesus and it changed everything. He saw the holes in his hands, the holes in his feet, the hole in his side. And he recognized that Jesus was who he said he was. The very guy who he said before, you are crazy. You are out of your mind. Now he's worshiping him. Read the book of James some, sometime. That is called no punches pulled faith. I mean, he comes at everybody, essentially, in his letter. James became a feisty believer for Jesus. Secondly, you notice Paul says somebody else. Not just James, the half-brother who didn't believe, but he includes himself, Paul. Why? You have the skeptical brother, and now you have the biggest enemy of Christianity that there was in this time. Paul was so convinced that these people were wrong. 
He was so convinced that the Christians were lying about Jesus that he was killing them and putting them in prison. And yet one day everything changed. What happened? How do you explain that? If something miraculous didn't happen. How do you explain what's in Galatians? I don't know if I have it up there. Galatians 1.23. The testimony about Paul was that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. These people were confused. Why? Because what happened to Paul? He saw Jesus. And when he saw Jesus, it changed everything. Why does Paul include this whenever he's talking to them? Is he saying the resurrection really happened? There is reasonable proof for that. There is a reason to believe it. Skeptics can't just not like it. Skeptics can't just dismiss it. You have to do something with this. You have to explain it. And while you're explaining that, explain why did Christianity emerge so rapidly with such power? No other band of Messianic followers in that era concluded that their leader was raised from the dead. Why did this group choose to do so? No group of Jews ever worshipped a human being as God. What led them to do so? Jews did not believe in divine men or individual resurrections. What changed their worldview virtually overnight? How do you count for the hundreds of eyewitnesses for, to the resurrection who lived on for decades and publicly maintained their testimony, eventually giving their life because they believed Jesus rose from the dead? Yo, if you're a believer, stand on this. You don't have to be afraid of a conversation. We don't have to be afraid of people coming to us with questions. If this is true, everything else is. If Jesus rose from the dead, shouldn't you listen to what he says, right? As Christians, we don't have to back down from an argument because you can't explain this with those first four options. But it seems reasonable to explain it with the last one. He was who he said he was. He did what he said he would do. The claims about him are true. Jesus died, he rose from the dead, and he is our Lord, and he is our Savior. Ian Hutchinson, who's a professor of nuclear science and engineering at MIT, did extensive work in studying the historical data re regarding this. And his conclusion was, in the case of Jesus' resurrection, we must consider the historical evidence. And the historical evidence for the resurrection is as good as almost any event that has ever happened in ancient history. From the beginning, people have tried to disprove and disqualify the resurrection of Christ. From the beginning. In Corinth, it happened. Here, it will happen. Around the world, it will happen. But we don't believe by blind faith, but based on reasonable evidence that Jesus did what he said he did. So what does the Bible say happened? The four points, the four facts surrounding the resurrection. What options do we have? Do we have adequate reason to believe it? You saw the five options that were given, and I believe by far the most reasonable is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And the last question I would ask is, what now? Why is Paul so adamant about this? I'm going to show you two things that Paul's saying to them. One, he's adamant because he's telling them, you must live a resurrected life. Look at what he says first. Live a resurrected life. Life. Look at verses 1 and 2, how he leads, how he leads into this conversation. Now I would remind you, brothers, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if. Notice that word, if. 
If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He says, hold fast. I gave you this word which you received in which you were standing, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, in essence, I believe that you received the word. You want to know why? Because Paul was the one who delivered it. He's the one who gave them the gospel. He says, I believe you have received it. I believe you are standing in it. But if you really believe, then you will hold fast the word of God through this trial. If you really believe, you will continue in this. You will hold fast to the word is the exact way he puts it. You will hold fast. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, if you don't, it proves you believed in vain. This idea to hold fast to the word. Hold fast means we live without compromising the word of God. Not perfectly, obviously, but it is our aim to hold fast to the word, to live in light of it. Paul is saying, if you don't, then you believed in vain, which means what? Paul is saying, if you truly believe the message I gave you, you will continue in it. If you truly believed what I told you about the gospel, you will live in light of it. A shortened way I would say this. He says, I believe you are, but if you are, then you will stand firm in it. I like how a few scholars come together. They write a blog called gotquestions.org. I'd encourage anybody to go to it. It's got a lot of great resources. But in it, on this very idea of if you stand firm in it, they say this. Paul adds the qualifier that the Corinthians were saved if they held fast to the word he had preached. The word was the message of the gospel. In other words, saving faith causes believers to persevere and be diligent in their commitments to Christ. Paul wasn't saying that those who are saved can lose their salvation, nor was he implying that believers never struggle with sin and failure. Rather, Paul meant that genuine salvation proves itself over the long haul of life. You know, the church of Corinth was being tested. You know what James 1 talks to us about, about tests? Trials in your life are just faith testers. They test what your faith is made of. They test whether your faith is real. I remember whenever I first became a believer and I was going through trials and I had somebody share with me, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. If you truly believe in Jesus, you will walk in him. Not perfectly as this is saying. But what is Paul trying to tell them? Is if you turn your back on this, you believed in vain. You believed in vain. I believe you got this. I believe you're standing in it. So stand strong in it. Do not back down. I like how one commentator says, Paul is almost asking them, did you believe in vain or did you not? Is that a question we must ask ourselves as well? I think as we come to this text, it seems obvious that it is. Did we believe in vain or not? What does our life say? Are we seeking to live for Jesus? Are we seeking to hold fast to the word? I mean, seeking to live for him uncompromisingly. Yes, in our struggles. Yes, in our pain. Yes, through the ups and downs of life. But are we seeking to live for Jesus? You know, after looking at this, I, I first thought, what exactly does this even have to do with the resurrection, Paul? Why talk to them about this aspect? Well, honestly, it has everything to do with the resurrection. Romans chapter 6, one of the best chapters we have on the resurrection of Jesus and how we identify with Jesus. It talks specifically about the doctrine of baptism. Romans 6, 11 says this, So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. You know, it's interesting. I think the underlying proof that Paul doesn't just put on the page is the way you are living, church. You proclaim whether the resurrection is real or not. The way you are living shows whether you have died to sin and come alive in Jesus or if you have not. Galatians 5.24 is clear. Those who are in Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, we seek to put off the old self. That's Ephesians 4.22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and its corrupt and deceitful desires. Verse 24, put on the new self, credit after likeness of Christ and true righteousness and holiness. In other words, the way you and I live shows what we believe about the resurrection. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, if he really did die for my sins, whenever I place my faith in him, what I'm saying is I'm dying to my sin just as you did for me. And I'm coming alive in Christ just as you rose from the grave. The most clear way you can package this is Galatians 2.20. Paul's speaking to this group of people and he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does it look like to stand on the word? It looks like that. Seeking to live for Jesus. And as Paul would ask them, I would ask you, does your life reflect that? What does your life say you believe? Are you standing firm in your faith? Are you holding fast to the word? Maybe you're going through a trial or a struggle. I would encourage you, stand firm in it. Maybe you've fallen you're struggling right now, I would encourage you, repent. Get back up. Stand firm in the word. If you do believe, live like it. As Paul is saying, live a resurrected life. So what now? First, he's saying, live a resurrected life. And then secondly, he's saying, pass on the resurrection story. This is as clear as day whenever you read this whole chapter. This is one of his main things he is saying, is take what I have given you, and pass it on. Look at verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What's Paul saying? I received this, and I have delivered it to you. But one of the problems with the church of Corinth is they received it, and they hadn't delivered it to anybody else. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, the very end, it says this. Paul says, "Some For some have no knowledge of God. I say this. To your shame. Paul is saying, I received the word of God. I gave it to you. You've received the word of God. Now go give it to them. Go give it to them. How do you do it? Paul says, don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Don't pretty it up. I received it, and I gave it to you the way I received it. Now you've received it. Now give it away the way you have received it. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He rose again from the grave three days later. He is our resurrected Savior and Lord. I love the way Charles Spurgeon says it. He says, you don't have to pretty up the gospel. The gospel's a lion. Just open up the cage and get out the way. Paul says, what has been given to me, I passed it on to you. You are called to pass it on as well. Yo, our belief in the resurrection isn't just a belief in what Jesus did. It's a belief in what Jesus can do. If God, through the Holy Spirit, raised dead Jesus back to life, what could he do with you and me? If Romans 8 says the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells 
in the believer. This is the spirit that works in us. We're called to pass on what has been given to us. You know, as I've read this and thought about Paul's statement, for some have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. Honestly, the first thing I thought about was my neighborhood. I wonder if all of my neighbors know Jesus. Truth is, I don't know. Is it possible, Merrick, that, that Paul would say to me, for some have no knowledge who are your neighbor right around you. I say this to your shame. Is it possible that he may would say to us, there are people in your workplace that do not know the name of Jesus. I say this to your shame. Is it possible, Jesus may would say, there are people in your schools who do not know Jesus. I say this to your shame. Y'all, what are we called to do? We're called to take the word which we have received and to pass it on. You don't have to pretty it up. You don't have to pretty it up. It works. How should we pass it on? Don't change it. Don't subtract from it. Don't add to it. Pass it on. And I want to end by saying this. Why did Paul pass it along? Why did Paul pass it along? Look at verse 3 again. For I delivered to you as of what? As of first importance. What's that saying? Paul's saying, my priority was to give you the gospel. That was my first importance. Y'all, I really like Amazon. I like buying things. My wife likes buying things. I like getting books. She likes getting clothes and other stuff. Whenever we buy stuff and it goes to the shipping time, you know what I'm always going to hit? Priority. You know why? Because I want it quickly. If I have to send something out and they need it badly, you know how I'm going to send it? I'm going to send it priority mail, right? What does that mean? It means it's my first priority. I'm going to get it there quickly. What's Paul saying? The gospel of Jesus Christ is worthy of priority mail. It's worthy of getting it out there. Paul's saying, I gave this to you because this was the first importance to me. It was my priority, which in turn, what is he asking them? Is it yours? What is it asking us? Is it yours? On your list of priorities, where is it sharing the message of Jesus with my neighbor, with my coworker, with my classmate, with my friends, with people I come in contact with? Is it your first priority? Yo, as a church and as individuals, we're called to share the word. You know why? Because that is our responsibility. As Braden said at the very beginning of the service, our mission statement here is we exist to make disciples by helping people know, follow, and serve Jesus, but it doesn't end there. It's here and around the world. We have been given a message, and our job is to give it to the people in our county, in our state, in our country, and ultimately in our world. And we do it because the resurrection is worthy of talking about, because it really happened. Once again, everything hinges on the resurrection. Our Lord and Savior Jesus rose from the grave. As I said earlier, there is an unoccupied tomb in the Middle East and an occupied throne in heaven. Therefore, we have reason to rejoice today. Therefore, we have reason to pass this message on. And I would ask you, will you live for him? Will you proclaim him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we praise your name. 
God, we praise your name because you give us reason to rejoice. You are alive. God, I pray you'd be with all of us in the room this morning. God, help us focus in and really look at ourselves, God. Are we living like we believe this to be true? Do we really believe it? For some of us, Lord, we maybe have heard this so much now we can just say it without feeling anything. God, restore the wonder of what you did. Billions of people have died. One has risen from the dead. God, I pray, help us recognize what it is you've done. God, help us marvel in it. Help us marvel over who you are. God, help us respond to you as we need to this morning. I ask all this, Father, in your precious and your holy son's name. Amen. I'll just ask you several questions this morning. The first is, how do you need to turn and repent to Jesus today? You know, maybe today you're like, Merrick, I've been struggling. Repent. Hold fast to the word. Maybe there are trials in your life that have made you separate from the Lord's Son. Hold fast to the word. Repent. Maybe this morning as you look at this, you recognize, I've never really placed my faith in Jesus. Maybe you've made some profession at some point, but it is not obvious in your life. It has not changed the way you live. But I ask you this morning, maybe you don't know Jesus. Will you repent and surrender your life to him? Secondly, I would ask you, how would you pass this message on? Or the way Paul would even say it, is this a priority to you? Do you recognize how serious this is? If this happened, it changes everything. Will you boldly share this with others, recognizing the burden of proof is in our favor? The reasonable evidence is in our favor. I'll ask you this morning, who needs to hear the gospel around you? Think about it. Who could you share Christ with? Phone call, text message, letter, whatever. Who do you need to share Christ with? Once again, y'all, we worship a risen Savior and Lord. Let's be faithful to live for him, to walk in light of that. I'd ask you this morning just to respond where you're seated, praying to the Lord and responding to him this morning.